All right, well, good morning, everyone. Uh, I am very excited to be able to open the Word of God with you this morning. I love that the Word of God always has power to do all that God wants to accomplish through it. And it has power to comfort those who need comfort, to strengthen the weak. It has power even to change hearts so that those who have dead and unbelieving hearts would have new living hearts that love God. I love the power of God's word, and so I'm excited that I get to open it together with you. Uh, so please open your Bibles with me to the book of First Thessalonians. First Thessalonians is where we will be this morning, and we're going to study the passage in First Thessalonians about the rapture. And that's going to be verses 13 through 18 of First Thessalonians chapter 4. So 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. And as we begin, please look at that passage and listen as I read it and read along with me in your head. And the word of God says this, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. Well, this is a passage, as you've just heard, about comfort. And it's an interesting thing to think about because when we think about the rapture and when we think about eschatology, a lot of times what our minds go to is some kind of uh, Bible trivia or some kind of confusion and, and theories on what's going to happen in the end times. What is all the sequence of events when Christ returns and the tribulation and will the church be there or not? And, and what I want you to realize this morning is that this eschatology and this study of what happens when Christ returns it's not so that you can just be right about a theological argument or win a debate with your friends. God teaches us this theology for the purpose of comfort. We need to know this message, this passage of scripture, because it's essential to comfort those in grief, to comfort those who are sad. Do you know sadness. I just don't, I don't just mean that, do you know about sadness, like what it is, but, but are you well acquainted? Are you familiar with what it means to be sad, to be troubled, to be anxious, or even depressed? I think that it's a problem that is way more common today in students your age than it has ever been before. 
You can look up statistics anywhere and see that numbers are soaring with cases of depression and anxiety and suicides. And, and this is a big problem in our world today, to be sad, to be grieved, to not know how to find joy or peace. And so as we think about that, well, this is a passage that God has given to us this morning precisely to deal with sadness and grief. It's a passage of comfort. It's a passage of encouragement. And I'm just thankful for the character of our great God who is good and gracious and kind and loving, and he does not like to see his people suffering in sadness. He likes to see his people joyful and rejoicing in him, right? Jesus came that we may have life and have it abundantly. He came that our joy may be made full. And so he gave us this passage and he's given us everything that we need to deal with the problems that we have. First Peter 1.3 says that God's divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. So if you know sadness, if you know what it means to be depressed, and if you are all too familiar with that problem, or, or you have friends that are, well then, this passage is for us, from God, to fight just that. This is a passage about God's solution for sadness. God's solution for sadness. And if we were to boil down this whole passage and the principles that we learn here to one key idea, it would be this. God's solution for sadness is for believers to learn his word and comfort one another with it. God's solution for sadness is for believers to learn his word and comfort one another with it. Uh, the ultimate solution and help for the sadness of this world is found in the word of God because the word of God is powerful. It's living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It is useful to make us wise unto salvation and to encourage downtrodden and broken hearts. And so we look to God's word to see how to solve sadness. And as we look at verse 13, we're going to see that the way that God does that is through teaching. The way that God provides us help is by teaching us his word. Look at the first words that Paul says in verse 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed brothers, or you could literally translate it. We don't want you to be ignorant. We don't want you not to know. We want you to know these things that I'm about to teach you. And so we see that first, God's solution is going to be through teaching his word. That's why the big idea is for believers to learn his word. So it's teaching. And so what? For what purpose? If you look at the end of verse 13, so that you will not grieve as the rest who have no hope. So we see right from the outset, this is a passage to help you deal with grief and that's going to come through being informed or by learning. And so the plan is we cover this passage. We're going to have four points, and they're going to be learn, 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 and then apply what we've learned. So there's going to be three things to learn, and then one way to apply all of that learning is we learn 
from this passage. Okay? So the first point as we see God's solution for sadness is to learn, and it's to learn about the Thessalonians' sadness. We'll see that in the end of verse 13. To learn about the Thessalonians' sadness. And this is very important because I think in some ways the Thessalonians' sadness can often be different from our sadness. It could be for a different purpose, and we need to recognize that. What makes you sad? When you're feeling down, what's the reason for it? Maybe sometimes you don't even know the reason for it. It just doesn't feel right. Uh, Maybe you feel like you just don't measure up to the standards uh, that seem to be imposed over you. Or you compare yourself to other people and and you just don't see the same kind of happy and joyful existence that they seem to have. Maybe it's just that you don't like the weather outside today and so you're a little bit down. Maybe you just woke up on the wrong side of the bed. There's all kinds of reasons to be sad. There's all kinds of reasons that you might experience sadness. But if I'm not mistaken, because I know this about my own heart, and you can think about yourself too, it probably has to do with the way you see your own life. Your sadness probably has something to do with whether or not you think things are going well for you. Do you like the way that things are? And if you don't, is that the source of your sadness? Well, I think it's very important for us to notice, first off, as we look at this passage, that the Thessalonians, they were not sad for themselves. They were sad for others because they loved their fellow Christians. And we're going to look at that a little bit. They they were sad because of something that happened to fellow believers. And, And, well, how are we going to learn a little bit about this? We need some history of the Thessalonian church. Paul wrote the book of 1 Thessalonians, after he had gone through on his second missionary journey to visit Thessalonica. Paul was a missionary. He went around to all of these different churches, preaching the gospel and establishing churches so that the gospel would go forth through all the world to both Jews and Gentiles. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. And and so he would go to all these cities, preach the gospel, establish churches, teach them, stay as long as he could, and then move on. The unique thing about Thessalonica is that when Paul went there, he could only stay for a very short time. He couldn't stay very long. Why was that? Well, if we look in Acts 17, we learn a little bit about it. In Acts 17, they uh, were traveling through in verse 2, according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them in the scriptures. So you see he's there for three weeks. So think about this. New place, have not heard the gospel preached before, Paul comes in, preaches the gospel. He only gets to stay there for three weeks teaching them, explaining, verse 3, and setting before them that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is that Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and they joined Paul and Silas and a great multitude of God-fearing Greeks, those are Gentiles, and not a few of the leading women. But look what happened. He could only stay there three weeks because verse 5 in Acts 17, but the Jews becoming jealous taking along some wicked men from the marketplace and forming a mob, set the city in an uproar and attacking the house of Jason. They were seeking to bring them out to the assembly. And if we fast forward a little bit, we we see that the Christians there encouraged Paul and his ministry companions to move on. They're saying this is getting bad, that this persecution, this this uproar, this riot, this mob, why don't you move on to the next city? Uh, we'll stay strong here in this church. And so Paul could only be there for three weeks. He moved on. But the main thing, because he needed to encourage 
this new church who'd only been alive for three weeks. He needed to encourage them in this persecution that was arising. And so what did he teach them? He taught them that Jesus is coming soon. Jesus, the Christ, the one who died for sins and rose again, he ascended into heaven and he's coming back soon. And the Thessalonians believed that and they clung to that. And that was their hope and joy. And God did such amazing work in Thessalonica in such a short time. We see such a good report in the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians. If you just look back at verse 5 of chapter 1, Paul says, Our gospel didn't come to you in word only, but also in power. And in the Holy Spirit, with full assurance, these people got that teaching that they just had for a short amount of time. And they not only learned it, they applied it. They became an example. Verse 7 of chapter 1, you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. And look at what they became a model of. If we look at the beginning of chapter 4, or sorry, chapter 4, verse 9, now concerning love of the brothers... You have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. These believers heard the gospel and they loved one another so much that Paul didn't even need to give them any extra exhortation on that. He simply said, excel still more. Keep going. You're doing great. And so these believers, all they they needed was this little bit of teaching that Jesus is coming back soon and they believed that he was going to come back possibly in their lifetime. They were looking forward to this. It was the next thing that was going to happen. But some of them were dying. The persecution was hard. Some of them were certainly older. And, and as some believers died, the Thessalonians wondered, well, what happens to them? We're all looking forward to being here when the Lord comes back and we get to see him face to face for the first time. What about those that died? They're not going to have those same benefits. They're not going to see the Lord come in all his glory. And so they started grieving over these who had died. This is why the Thessalonians were sad. They were sad that their friends were going to miss out on some part of the glory of Jesus Christ. And so as we look at this, as we learn about the Thessalonians' sadness, we need to see like, wow, sometimes the things that I'm sad over are just because I'm thinking so much about myself and how things are going for me. These Thessalonians, who'd been at church for three weeks of their whole life, they loved the brothers so much and they said, what, what's going to happen to them? I want them to be able to share in that same joy of Christ. So if you're going to have joy in suffering, if you're going to have joy instead of sorrow or sadness, well, the first thing is just get your mind off yourself so much. Start thinking of others more. Start modeling what the Thessalonians modeled and consider one another is more important than yourself, Philippians 2. That, taking your eyes off of yourself and putting them on Christ and on others, that'll automatically make you a happier and more joyful person. And that's why. The, but look at the Thessalonians. They were still grieved. Why? Because they thought, that these believers who had died, they're not going to see the glory of Christ in the same way that we will. And Paul is here to say, that's not true. Actually, they will. That's why this passage is encouraging. He says in verse 13, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep. That's just a euphemism for having died so that you will not grieve as the rest who have no hope. Now he automatically infers there that we actually do have hope, that they actually do have hope. Well, what is that? And, uh, as we move on here, we're, we're going to see that we need to learn, secondly, God's prescription for sadness. So we learned why the Thessalonians were sad. Now let's learn God's prescription for sadness. You can look at verses 14 through the first part of 15. 
And Paul's going to give the hope here, give the help. And, and, and as you think of reasons why you might be sad or reasons why people you know might be sad or the world might be sad, and there's proposed solutions to that sadness. How do people think to solve this problem? What do people of this world prescribe for sadness? Maybe you need to listen to some happy music. Maybe you just need some sleep. Maybe some good food will put a smile on your face. Or maybe a doctor will prescribe some sort of medication some sort of antidepressant to sort of quell those side effects, or not side effects, but the symptoms of your sadness. But what we need to realize, oh, and by the way, the sad part is that many in this world think that the way to deal with sadness and depression is to go to things like drugs or alcohol and drown it out, forget what's going on in my life, drown out the pain. Friends, if that's the way that you're looking to deal with your sadness, that will only lead to greater depression. You're harming yourself. You're dishonoring the Lord. There is no hope in that path. Those things cannot bring you joy. We can't look to the world's solutions or our own solutions to sadness. We have to look to God's solution for sadness. And we're going to see that, that is a, it's fully centered on a knowledge of God's word. God's solution to sadness is centered around his word. And there's sort of two ways that I want to show you that. It requires remembering what you already know from God's word and also learning what you don't know yet from God's word. But either way, it's centered around his word. Before we get into those details, though, I just want you to back up for a second and realize the first four words of verse 14. What's the hope that we have? Verse 14, for if we believe. I want you to notice that that's a conditional statement. Paul says, if we believe. And so right away, we're going to realize that the truth, the encouragement of this passage will only apply to you if you believe. You understand a conditional statement. If you eat all your dinner, then you can get some ice cream. If you complete this work project, then you can go out with your friends. But if not, then, then the deal's up. So Paul is saying, if we believe. And that's so important because you need to understand the true source of your sadness. You need to understand the true source of sadness in the world. It's not just all these symptoms. It's not just because your life is hard. It's not just because you have too much homework. It's not because your friends don't like you. It's not because your parents won't let you do what you want. And it's not because you have some sort of sickness or injury. The source of your sadness is not any of those things. Those are just symptoms. The real source of your sadness and all sadness is sin. The source of sadness is sin. Sadness came into the world because of sin, because sin drives a wedge between you and God, the source of all joy. Isaiah 59, 1 through 3. Behold, the hand of Yahweh is not so short that it cannot save. You can't blame God for that. Nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Your sins have separated you from God. That's a problem because he is holy. 1 John 1, 9 says that he is light and in him is no darkness at all. He cannot look upon sin. Habakkuk 1, 13, your eyes are too pure to see evil. You cannot look on trouble. 
And you can't get back into the right standing before God by your works. Romans 3.20, because of the, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Isaiah 64.6, all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment to a holy God. And so sin is the source of sadness because sin leads to death and the wrath of God. And that is a terrifying and terrible and sad reality. Ephesians 2.3 says, among the sons of obedience, we also formerly conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. In Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Romans 6.23, simple, the wages of sin is death. Death is sad. Wrath upon sin. It's a sad reality. So the source of all sadness ultimately is sin. You you have to realize that first before you try to fix anything else. Realize that problem. Paul somehow is emphatic that even in this, there is hope. Even in the midst of this sin that drives a separation between you and God, there is hope. And what is that? Well, if we finish verse 14, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, that's just a really simple, compact statement that houses the full revelation of the gospel. Jesus' death and resurrection is the power that undoes sin and death. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about this. In verse 3, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Do you believe this, friends? Not just do you recognize that it's true or understand the facts, but do you believe that you are truly a sinner, helpless on your own, fully deserving of the wrath of God? Do you see that sad state that your soul is in by default? And then do you see that God sent his only son, Jesus, so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life because he lived that perfect life to earn righteousness before God for you and died the death that he didn't deserve, that you deserved, to make that great exchange so that he might take upon all the weight of wrath for your sin and instead give you all the earned righteousness that he racked up in his perfect life and his perfect holiness. That's the hope that you have. Having truly died for sins, satisfied the wrath of God, he rose from the grave showing that he has power even over death. He rose again. He has that power of eternal life and so you can have eternal life through him And he ascended into heaven, totally accepted by the Father because his work had been finished. And now he can grant life to whoever believes in him. So Paul says there's hope if we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And this is something that he wants to remind the Thessalonians of. As we come back to that solution being a focus on God's word and the first part of that being remember what you already know from God's word, he says, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, that's what I preach to you, friends. Even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Remember what the Thessalonians were sad about? 
their friends dying and not seeing Jesus when he returns face to face? Paul's saying, no, they will. God has got them. He will take them with him. And Jesus had taught this already to his disciples in John 14. Listen to this amazing teaching. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So Paul's saying, remember this promise of Jesus. Count on it. The Lord will come back and he'll take with them even those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Even those who have already died, they will get to see him. Well, how is that going to happen, Paul? And so now we see that we also need to learn something new. Because the Thessalonians, they didn't have that much teaching. Three weeks of Paul's instruction and now a letter from him. And he's going to give them some new revelation from God. Look at verse 15. He begins, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. What he's talking about here is he's saying, Thessalonians, friends, there's new revelation that Jesus himself has told me that I'm about to write to you to help you precisely with this issue. You're worried that your dear friends who have died in the Lord may not see the same glory of Christ when he returns. Let me give you exactly what Jesus told me. Let me tell you. So this is exciting. They they get to learn something new. And and just some principles that we can take from this, friends. Remember, when, when you need encouragement or when a friend needs encouragement, remember what you know from God's word. And then also realize there's more you need to learn. There's more you need to know. Maybe you just, you haven't rightly understood the truth that God has given you. You need to dig a little bit more, study a little bit harder, be encouraged by the truth that's here. Well, these Thessalonians are getting new revelation from God. And we have it too. Here it is. We get to see it. And so third, third thing we need to learn is learn the details. Learn the details of God's word. We don't just want some general concept that the dead are, are going to all be fine in Christ or those who have believed in him. No, we want to know the details. We want to know what's really going to happen because the better you know something, the more trust you can put in it. When I was growing up, my dad was a pilot. He used to fly us around in a little plane. And sometimes that's scary because as a little kid, you don't know what's keeping that plane in the air. And, and you don't know like how much training your dad has really put in to be able to do it. I trusted my dad, of course, but you can hit turbulence and hear warning alarms in the plane. And you're like, oh no, what's going on here? Something I noticed though is I actually took an interest in flying and I started to learn to fly as well and work towards my, my uh, pilot's license. And as I learned more about what keeps a plane in the air, and actually one of the things that stood out to me is like, it's really easy to turn the yoke of the plane and make it go where you want. It's, it's not that hard to muscle the plane around. And I realized this is actually, it really isn't that hard. That's why you can get your pilot's license before you can get your driver's license. Uh, But the more you know about those things, the more confidence you can put in it, the more safe you can feel. And so in the same way, the more you know about God's word, the more you know about how he works, what his plan is, the more trust you can have in him. So we need to know the details. Paul gives them two categories. He's going to tell them what's not going to happen, and then he's going to tell them what's going to happen when Jesus comes back. So let's learn the details. First, what won't happen? And Paul's purpose here is to allay their fears. They were worried that those who died wouldn't get the same revelation of Christ. They wouldn't see him face to face in the same way, wouldn't experience all the same blessings somehow. And Paul's saying, no, don't worry. Why? Verse 15, and of verse 15 there. 
that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, those of us who are still going to be here when he comes back, are still alive, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. And the word precede has the idea of having an advantage of some sort, of, of getting a better deal, of even overcoming a sort of type of idea. And what Paul's trying to say here is, no, you're not going to have it any better than them. You're not going to have it any better. You're, you're not going to have any advantage. It's not like you get the premium paid version and they're stuck with the free one. No, you're all going to have the same deal as you see Christ return to pick you up. Well, what's that going to be? Then so Paul's going to say what will happen. That's, that's what's not going to happen. We're not going to have any advantage. They're not going to miss out on anything. What will happen? And the first we're going to see is the sight. The sight. What's, what, what are we going to see? What's going to happen? Verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven. I think this is a more amazing statement than we even give credit for. Because think about this. Have you ever in your life seen Jesus? Do you know what it's going to be like when he comes? I can imagine like a little child whose father has gone off to fight in the military and been there for years. And when he comes home, how much joy does that child have to see his father again and run and hug him and be excited at his return Well, believers, we've come to love Jesus. And the amazing thing is we've never even seen him. And Jesus says that we're blessed because of that. John 20, 29, blessed are those who did not see and yet believed. And 1 Peter talks about, we haven't seen him yet. 1 Peter 1, 8, and though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Friends, if if we can rejoice with full joy now, just believing in him, walking by faith and not by sight, what joy will there be when we see him, when he actually comes and your eyes behold the glory of the Lord? Then we'll see, we'll say with the saints in Isaiah 25, eight through nine, behold, this is our God in whom we have hoped that he would save us. This is Yahweh in whom we have hoped. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. And that was, the, that was the promise that the disciples had when they, they actually saw Jesus go up into heaven in Acts 1. And the angels told them as they continued to gape in awe, they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking toward heaven? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. So he's coming again. He's coming in glory. He's coming on the clouds and we will see him. So that's the sight. One more note, the Lord himself. Do you notice that Paul adds that in there? Not just the Lord will descend, the Lord himself will descend. Paul wants you to be confident that he's not just sitting up there on his throne and sending a messenger to come get his people. He's not sending a babysitter or a nanny to come pick you up. He loves his saints. He's coming personally. You will see him when he comes. So what we're going to see, what, what about the sounds of the rapture? There's three of them. Look at what we see here in, in verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. Now this shout, that, that, that's a military term. It's idea of summoning people together, gathering everyone together. It's a summons. 
And the best way to see this, if God comes down with a shout and you hear the very voice of God, well, what's the purpose of that? We can peek forward to the end of the verse and we see that the dead in Christ will rise. And this goes back to the idea of, John, of what John says in John 5.25. Listen to this. Truly, truly, Jesus says, I say to you that an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. So what's happening here is Jesus comes down with a shout and the dead get up out of their graves and, and they get ready to meet him. We also see the voice of an archangel because this is not just a Lord who has no power and no servants. This is Yahweh of hosts who has armies of angels at his bidding, commanders of angels and many angels coming with him. He is the Lord of hosts. And Paul wants us to realize that too. He's coming in great glory, in great power. This is our God. And then we also hear the trumpet of God. Why a trumpet? What's a trumpet for? Well, in the Old Testament, trumpets were used for a, a, a number of different things, but they were always to gather together for something, whether it was an alarm trumpet to get together and run away from an enemy or a trumpet that called the Israelites together for a feast, time to get up and go together to this feast or to move out camp as they were wandering in the wilderness. There was a certain trumpet sound that they would all congregate and go, now we're going to move out. Very significantly, though, Sometimes a trumpet refers to announcing God coming down for his people to meet him. We see that when God comes down on the mountain of Sinai for his people in Exodus 19. It happened on the third day when there was morning, that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that the people who were in the camp trembled. This is a loud event. And then, Exodus 19, 19, the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder and Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. So a trumpet announcing God is coming down. You're going to meet him. And that's what's happening here. God is coming down. Jesus himself is coming and you will meet him. He's coming and there's a lot of loud sound. You're not going to miss this, by the way. You don't have to worry about like, oh no, the rapture happened and I didn't even know. It's going to be a big deal. Jesus coming in glory, a shout, a voice of an angel, a trumpet. And what happens? The dead in Christ will rise first. Well, that just dispels all the fears of the Thessalonians. They don't have to worry about those dead friends anymore. They're gonna, they're gonna, the first thing that's going to happen when Jesus comes back is they're all going to be alive again. So now you have all the believers together both the ones who are still living and the ones who have died. Now they're all together in one big group. And what happens next? Well, this is the security of the rapture. In verse 17, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Everyone together. And by the way, this is an astounding thing to think about. The dead believers all rising from the graves. Like, what about even those who don't really have a full body or any body anymore? What's going to happen there? Do you realize that God is giving them all new resurrection bodies? As all of the dead saints rise, and God gives them new bodies, and guess what? He gives you a new body too at the same time. In 1 Corinthians 15, 52, we hear about this. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, again, at the last trumpet, there's the trumpet again, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptibly, incorruptible, and we will be changed. 
So you see what happens here. The dead are raised. They're given new resurrection bodies, and we're changed so that we have new resurrection bodies too who can finally see the Lord in his glory without dying. Rather, we can rejoice. 1 John 3 says that when we see him, we will be like him. Well, that has implications for how we live now, doesn't it? 1 John also says that everyone who sees him must purify himself as he is pure. So we need to live in a holy way as we expect this coming, but it is a glorious one. By the way, being caught up, that's something that you don't have anything to do with. God fully has control over that. That's security. That's something to trust in. You don't have to be in the right place at the right time. God will just take you. You'll always be with the Lord. Irreversible. It can't be undone. Paul says always. At that point, uh, that's just amazing. There's going to be no more sadness at that point. You see how we don't have enough chance to think about sadness when we're contemplating the glory of Christ's return here. What's the reaction of that? Look at Isaiah 25 and verse 8. He will swallow up death for all time, and Lord Yahweh will wipe tears away from all faces, and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for Yahweh has spoken. What Yahweh says goes. Paul says this we have by the word of the Lord. You know that's trustworthy. We hear this from Isaiah. For Yahweh has spoken. It's going to happen. So question here is, remember that conditional statement. If we believe, are you a believer? Are you going to be included in this glorious coming of Christ? Look at your life. Look at your heart. Do you truly trust him? Do you truly love him? Do you look forward to this? The Thessalonians, that was, they could not wait for this to happen. Are you still clinging to something in this world that you think is better than him? Repent of your sins and believe and trust in Christ, and he gives you the power over death. He has power over He'll give you eternal life. There's nothing more that you could even be sad about when you focus on the glory that you have in him. For Paul even says that this momentary light affliction is producing in us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That's the glory of the rapture. These are, do you see, by the way, these details as we study, as we really dig in and see the truth of God's word, how comforting that is? How well do you study your Bible? How well do you know the truth of his word? If you're sad and you need comfort, if you have a friend who needs comfort, We'll let these words comfort you. And that's the last part, right? How do we apply this? Apply what you've learned. Paul makes it really easy. Verse 18. What are we supposed to do? Therefore, comfort one another with these words. A few things to notice. The word comfort, it's in a tense that indicates you should be doing this as a pattern of habit. This is something you should be regularly doing, comfort one another. Realize that also that it says comfort one another. It's not comfort yourself, although certainly that will happen if you are comforting one, one another. The best way to be comforted in yourself is to be thinking of others first. How can I learn from Scripture and encourage them? And you'll find your own heart taking great joy in that as well. And then how are you to comfort one another? With these words. This is helpful because, well, sometimes we don't really know what to say to someone who needs comfort, and our words aren't the best way to comfort anyone anyway. What's the best way to comfort someone? 
It's God's own words. He's given us all the comfort that we need in his word. In any situation that you're in or that you have a friend who needs comfort, realize that scripture has comfort for that situation. For the Thessalonians, it was that their friends had died. They didn't know if, he was gonna, if they were going to see the glory of Christ. And Paul says, here, here's some words for you to comfort. Comfort one another with these words. You might have a different problem. Your friend might have something else that they're struggling with. Learn the details of what scripture says about that situation and comfort them with those words. So comfort one another with these words. Well, this is God's solution for sadness. This is how you deal with that in your own heart and in the hearts of your friends. How do you comfort an unbeliever, though? You realize that there's not any true, lasting, eternal comfort for them. The best way to to give true comfort to an unbeliever is to share the gospel with them so that they will become a believer and be able to expect this with you. That's what they need. Unbeliever, if you're an unbeliever here, that's what you need to come to know Christ so that you can expect this comfort. And if your friend is a believer, it's great. You just get to remind them of what you know from scripture and keep learning more and comfort them with, with these words. And Jesus can be a God of all comfort because Like you, he's been sorrowful. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Isaiah 53, 3, verse 4, our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried. You realize that he can give you joy because he was made sorrowful. He can give you righteousness because he was made sin. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 1 Peter 2.21, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sin, we might live to righteousness. By his wounds, you are healed. I'm just showing you that Jesus can provide comfort because he's gone through sorrow and sadness. He's taken your sadness and your grief so that you can have the joy that he provides. Why did he do all this? 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring you to God. Isn't that what we've just seen in this passage? How Jesus is going to come back and bring us to himself and take us to the rooms that he's been preparing in the Father's house to bring you to God. And he's done that through accomplishing his finished work on the cross. That's what we trust in. That's where our comfort is. And and we hope as we know that he's ascended into heaven, that he will come back in the same way. That's the source of our joy. That's the source of our comfort. And by the way, if God has accomplished a victory over death and over the worst sadness that there can be, anything else is smaller and easier to find comfort for in this world. So do you see how studying and learning God's word is the solution to sadness? Do you see what it means now that that God's solution to sadness is to learn his word and then to comfort others with it? It's all all here. Learn this. Know it. This This is the fix. And that comfort's available to all who believe on the name of Christ. Everyone who believes in him will be caught up with him. That's great joy. So let's praise the Lord as we pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this comfort that you give in your word. Thank you that not even death can separate us from your love, that even the dead will rise together and 
all believers will be caught together with Christ and it will be an amazing and glorious experience. Lord, I pray for those hearts who do not yet know Christ. Lord, show them, open their eyes to believe your word that they might also be included in this glorious rapture and encourage our hearts as we continue to trust in you. Lord, we're thankful for the finished work on the cross and the resurrection of Christ that guarantees our resurrection as well. So we praise you, we worship you, we need the help of your spirit to apply these words. And so we ask for your help to do that. And we ask for the glory of your son. And we pray confidently in his name. Amen.